The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. The Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our listeners 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do, especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community. Our other offer for our listeners is still with Backstage. Backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription. You heard that right, 12 months free. If you follow the link in the description box for casting directors, you can post free castings when you type in persistent and nasty at checkout. Hello, you gorgeous lot, and welcome to another episode of Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Elaine here. Well, 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 here we are in November and um, lockdown is happening all over the place again. Scotland, we are still living our tear dream and uh, we are all patiently, maybe some of us not so patiently, and anxiously waiting the results of a certain election on the other side of the pond. Come on 2020, one win, surely we get one win. Anyway, how are you all? Is everybody well? I hope you are keeping safe. I hope you are wearing your masks, washing your hands and being kind to each other. Today's guest is the lovely Lizzie Talbot. Lizzie is an intimacy coordinator and intimacy director for stage and screen. Um, Misha and I have a really interesting, really in-depth chat about this um, subject and just really what's ha- been happening within our industry across stage and screen with in terms of intimacy and how things are being worked, what they're doing. This is a really um, vital and useful um, episode and I'm sure you will all really enjoy it and um, Lizzie is just lovely and we were so glad to be able to chat to her. Uh, you can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty and you can always send us a little email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. As always we are so thankful for everyone for your support. Please remember to like, subscribe, review and download the episode. It really makes a huge difference to us. If you would like to support Persistent and Nasty podcast, the PayPal link is in the description of this episode. We are overwhelmed and humbled by all of your support. Our nasty people really are amazing and we can't thank you enough. So, enough of me doing my usual rambling on. Let's, oh, since it's October, it's October? It's not October, it's November. Let's not add any more time to 2020. Since it's November and it's getting a little bit colder, let's have a little, oh, I suggest a wee cup of tea, coffee, 
Ooh, or a wee hot chocolate for today's episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. About mm-hmm. masturbation. Um, yeah, because I edited the okay. podcast, I realised that the last three episodes I've been like, and um, yep, so masturbate. Yep, look after yourselves, guys. <laughs> this is your weekly podcast reminder to masturbate. Self-care, self-care. <laughs> and welcome to Persistent and Nasty. Um, kind of something really. Uh, Lizzie, welcome to Persistent and Nasty. Uh, we are so pleased to have you. Um, I think probably the easiest way to start is if you can give us like a little potted history for our listeners so they get to know a little bit about you and your um, career. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being on here today. Um, so my name's Lizzie. I'm an intimacy coordinator uh, for TV and film and an intimacy director for theatre. There's sort of two um, avenues there. I started researching this in sort of 2015 um, and I came at it from like a fight director's perspective. Um, I noticed that in my training as a fight director, I was very conscious of the fact that how many sort of um, safety aspects we were looking at for physical violence. Um, and we were very focused on like, you know, the, the safety around it and um, how to look after people and how to make sure the fights still look good, but also um, everyone was still like kept physically well. Um, and then I started looking at intimacy and I couldn't believe the disparity. I couldn't believe that there were absolutely like no safety nets, no methodology for looking after people who are working with intimacy. And both carry, you know, like big risks um, in terms of like the, um, after effects um, and especially like things that can go wrong and um, I was really shocked that there really wasn't much um, like research into this so I started digging around and uh, I found that um, in the states there was a lady called Tonya Cena who had already started looking at this which was amazing and I I got to meet her shortly after and we just started chatting about um, you know the the world of intimacy she actually coined the phrase like intimacy choreographer and intimacy director like as far back as 2004 so that was a that was just a a great introduction for me um, that there was already someone working in this field and uh, after that I started researching I started sort of putting a team together and uh, I opened uh, theatrical intimacy in in 2016 which is really cool which is the first uh, intimacy company in the UK and it just kind of like went from there. I will say that it wasn't always easy. Um, I ran a workshop uh, very early on um, about intimacy and I got one person. So <laughs> it did not take off immediately. Um, but with the help of the Me Too movement, um, that's really kind of spurred where we are today. And it's the reason that I think that we are as far along as we are. So that's like that's, that's so me. fascinating that that movement has had that impact because I think um, and I don't know maybe this is just a personal feeling and sometimes that movement doesn't always feel like we can see the results of it that are that are clear and that are happening because obviously we all know there's lots of things that are still going on within not just our industry but within all industries so to know that something has triggered that and, and kind of maybe pushed it quicker up up the chain is like you know if you've only had one person at an intimacy accord like I find that really fascinating one person at a workshop because I would imagine now if you were to do a workshop it would be full 
Yes, it's been pretty good recently. It's been exciting. Um, yeah, and I, and I will say we started this um, specifically looking at theatre. And one of the really interesting things is, is that um, with theatre, it's definitely had far more of a grassroots development. So the people that I first got at my workshop before the Me Too movement were students, um, were um, people who would part of class themselves as like non-professional actors, um, like, and, and that's sort of like category. Um, and it has really taken a very long time to get the attention of uh, places like the National, places like the RSC. So it's definitely like a, a work in progress in theatre. I think what's interesting is that the film industry sort of had like a, a different um, revelation in terms of it was very much top down. So that was really interesting to see like the two different industries and their approaches towards it. Um, but yeah, when I turned up to run the workshop and there was one person there, I was like, what am I doing? This is nonsense. Like how on earth can this ever become, um, you know, let alone a real position? Because it was, again, it wasn't at that time. It wasn't about um, let's create a position um, for this. Let's create a role. It was more about like general education of like, hey, um, here's a methodology that works. It works every time. Um, it keeps people safe. So, you know, like it was about like, hey, here's some safety uh, aspects and a methodology. And hopefully um, we can look after our performers far better in terms of uh, intimacy. Um, and then it started to, to grow and um, it started to sort of uh, expand in a way that I hadn't really expected it. And the huge driving force of that was the Me Too movement. Um, people were talking about it. People were suddenly realizing their own agency. Um, people were sort of waking up to body autonomy. People were questioning uh, training practices that they'd had, uh, particularly sort of like the millennial um, era, uh, which is fascinating because it, being a classic millennial myself, um, I remember being told these things at drama school and definitely not questioning them. Um, definitely being like, oh, okay, yeah, no, yes, and. It is always yes, and. Uh, I need to be open. I need to have no boundaries. I need to make myself as accessible as possible. And if I don't, I clearly don't want to be in the industry badly enough. And I should go and be a pharmacist. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's, it was really fascinating to sort of like start to really question that for myself and be like, wait, I don't accept this in my fight work. Why would I accept this in any intimate work? So. That's, that's so fascinating. The yes and like there's just, um, I'm sure it probably even those that are listening that didn't train that idea of being open and you just need to accept it and just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can say so many things and I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll not start there straight away. <laughs> I'll let us build it in a little bit more. Um, and that really interesting that you then kind of question that on the fight side of it as well. So how long were you a fight director for? So I started training in stage combat uh, in 2009. Um, so it's sort of been, you know, like 10 years of training and like the last um, few being like more professional work. So it's been fascinating. And also like um, being a uh, educator myself, um, like uh, teaching a, a wide variety of people, um, I noticed when I started teaching as a, as a fight director, or as a stage combat instructor, 
I was bringing in like a lot of the things that I had just been told were right. Um, just things in terms of um, the, the way I uh, made assumptions in class. Like even when um, I was kind of working with a student, um, you know, we had been told, you know, like, hey, make sure that, you know, you're aware of consent. Um, but what had happened to me in my training was that people were asking, but there was a huge amount of assumption on their part. So if I was doing something, you know, that, that was incorrectly in, in my training as a student, um, a teacher might come over and say, oh, uh, can I just? And, but their hands would always be halfway towards me um, in that question. And so there's a lot of assumed consent there. And I always think as uh, being the student on the receiving end of that, I'm not concentrating on what is coming out of their mouth at that point. I'm concentrating on the proximity of their hands to my body and the fact that they're about to manipulate my body and the fact that there's a power dynamic there with teacher and student. And it takes a huge amount to say no. And so like, there's so many thoughts that like going through your head at that moment that their hands are probably already on your body or, or manipulating your hands by the time you've really had a chance to consider whether that is okay, whether that's a yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just as you said that, because I do a lot of teaching um, myself and mm -hmm. there's probably been times when I've like, you know, tried to get a student to stand up straight mm -hmm. and I've probably like now I think about it and I go, I always say, is it okay if I do this? But now I'm like questioning myself, was my hand already halfway like there? And it's so, because, but then that's a really, that's an assumption that I think that a society we make being a female, there seems like that less um, kind of predatory, and I put that in quotation marks, mm -hmm. um, movement, but that still doesn't mean anything for somebody if they're not, if that they're not comfortable with that um and that's it's always a learning day right and i think that it's really important that um people don't like spend forever beating themselves up about it because like consent wasn't taught in the way that it is now mm. and i and i think that that's a really important thing to remember because people's you know then panic and be like, oh my gosh, you know, like what trauma have I inflicted? I'm the worst person in the world. It's like, well, no, because you probably didn't know any better. You probably were doing it with like the best intentions, um, but there wasn't much information around it. And I think it's really important that like, hey, we're all on a learning journey. Um, I really hope that in five years time, my teaching style is very different than it is now. Like I, I want to be able to be that sponge. I want to be able to learn and grow and change. Um, because the world's changing very quickly. And again, it's, it's about adapting and making sure that you are as inclusive as possible. And I hope that in five years time, there's even more of that and it just continues. So like, don't definitely don't beat yourself up about like worrying um, what you have done. I think, you know, like every day is a new day, just keep moving forward, keep mm. learning, keep growing. Um, but yeah, I, I also think, you know, like as students, um, just that acceptance of, of what you've been told without like the really questioning it because people are very easily idolized in our business. Um, and it's often like quite difficult to sort of question like what people are saying to you. That's so true. Um, and I do, and I mean, again, I could be wrong um, with other industries, but there is something, as you say, within our industry, there is that sense of um, the idol and the, the the how much you revere that person that you like so 
you wouldn't question because you're feeling like you're learning and they're going to teach you everything. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I'm sure we all know, having gone to um, however you trained is like, the one thing is don't be a dick, just get, do the work, just say yes. And how like that thing of actually questioning somebody in a genuine way can then be conceived, especially as a female, as you're being a troublemaker in the room. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that is a um, a story that gets told about you when all you might have done. Oh, it's exactly what we've said before about what is the one thing we're scared of when speaking out in a room? That you will never be employed again. That you will never get hired. Like, And as an actor when, who's just desperate to be seen in any room, that's just... It is, it's the biggest fear. And that's exactly what that is. It's the, the fear of speaking out and someone saying, all right, well, they're difficult, so we'll not have them again. Yeah. It's mad. Yeah. It's such an interesting um, power dynamic. It's definitely, mm-hmm. it's definitely across all industries, but there is an extra layer of complexity in ours that is fascinating. And I'm glad that it's being addressed. Yeah, I think because ours involves uh, physical touch and also like simulated intimacy um, and simulated physical touch uh, in a way that you don't really find in other industries. Um, and so like the, the lines can so easily be blurred. Um, and we try and do so much work with, you know, defining personal and professional, because again, making sure that we, we have our body autonomy uh, that we speak so um, so highly of in in lots of other circles but again for years for actors it, it wasn't the case like that was something that actors weren't really allowed and so I think it's really good to try and sort of introduce these really healthy boundaries between like what you do at work is not necessarily like what you do at home and vice versa things that you do at home are not necessarily things that you're going to do at work and you know making sure that um that you have like this personal and professional body um, making sure that you have distinct boundaries between the two, um, being like vocal about those boundaries, making sure that people are aware of them. Um, but also I think most importantly is taking the time to figure out what your own boundaries are, because the last thing that you want to do is discover what your boundaries are in the moment, because at that point trauma has already happened. So I think I always encourage actors to just take some time, write down what their boundaries are, Um, be as clear as possible with them. Um, Decide if you've got boundaries that are negotiable that will change once you have familiarity with like a a scene partner or whether you have ones that are absolute, that you're not going to change regardless of who they are. Um, And just making sure that you speak at least three boundaries like into the space or give your partner three boundaries. I think it's a really healthy thing to start like exercising that right and normalizing the fact that like, okay, um, these are my boundaries and they are this one, this one, and this one. Um, and then I'd be like, cool. Okay. C- can I have yours? Yeah. They are this one, this one, and this one. All right, good. We've all got, we can all manage to deal with three boundaries. Like we can all manage that. Um, and you know, making sure that, okay. So just to clarify, they are this, 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 um, and yeah, get as much clarification as you need without being invasive. Um, and I think that that really um, helps good practice. Yeah, um, it, it, it's kind of something because so um, I was on a Q and A. I was one of the um, a 
participants, that's the word I'm looking for, um, with the Q&A that you and Sophie Holland did last week. And it was really fascinating. And something that you'd mentioned that I, that I didn't even think about, that actually um, what your work is doing are creating a romantic relationship and that sense of uh, that sense of intimacy and um, making sure that that doesn't cross over into real life. I found that really fascinating, that um, that conversation. It, it was just a tiny little bit of the question because I'm married, I work, all of that. So it's like, you know, and that's, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at being really clear. Um, however, I've never been in a situation where, you know, you've got caught up in that and I just I was wondering if we could touch a little bit more on that kind of stuff yeah for sure um so again talking about our industry in terms of like it is a physical industry it involves touch it involves emotions um we're, we're paid to do that um one of the things I think is really um fascinating with that is that we we engage our entire bodies so when we kiss someone um chances are, unless we're doing like a, a non-contact kiss, but they're, they're quite rare, um, that you will be um, putting yourself in a position where you will experience um, emotions that happen when you kiss someone. So there will be hormones that are coursing through your body. You, you will like, have an elevated heart rate. Like there are a lot of like physical things that happen to you uh, when, you're, when you're creating a kiss because it is a real kiss. Um, and so one of the things that we try and do is make a differentiation between um, what's real and what's not. Okay, so the kiss is real, like your hormones that you're experiencing, they're, they're real, uh, but the situation is fake. And that's what we've got to keep reminding ourselves. You know, like you're still two people rehearsing probably in a very cold rehearsal room under fluorescent lights uh, with lunchtime coming up in an hour. And so when we're dealing with scenes of intimacy, one thing I'm very strong about is I try and um, ensure that people are very aware that when they're dealing with scenes of intimacy, the emotions are real, but the situation is fake. And any way that I can ground them um, before and after, I think is really helpful. Uh, helpful. And uh, ensuring that we've got a very clear and strong closure exercise um, to ensure that what happens in the rehearsal room stays in the rehearsal room or what happens on set stays on set and that people aren't like carrying any of that um, like emotional residue home with them. I think people need to do that in general life. <laughs> like, yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Just do a little like aura cleanse before you leave a room. Like that's it, it's done. <laughs> yeah. um, it's honestly, it's see, hearing it, is so it's so obvious but it's so annoying that it's only just being spoken about like recently like I graduated like three years ago and I remember like all of the shows that we did where there was like cla like classmates kissing and, and things and and you look at it and you're like well that was like I mean it's so funny like I'm even undermining it trying to explain it like oh well it was just like a wee kiss in like this show or that show and oh we're all pals but it's so it does leave its mark and you know that you can feel those different elements of residue exactly as you've said and it's so fascinating just hearing it in 
because you would do the same with an emotional scene if there was mm-hmm. something that was particularly like traumatizing and you had to get yourself into a heightened state of emotion you would do an exercise at the end of that to make sure you weren't leaving the rehearsal room or set feeling like you were taking that away and it is yeah I, like it's just brilliant I'm so glad that it's now being taken as seriously as it should and has always like it should have been yeah there's a really fascinating article um it's in it's in a newspaper called the Chicago Reader um, and it's about profiles theater I'll see if I can get a link for you later on um but it was about this theater company called profiles theater um that was based in Chicago um it's a lengthy article it's heavy um it's uh, it's not quite bedtime reading um but it is so thoroughly uh researched and it's so well articulated um and it talks about a theater company that had so many issues with power dynamics so many uh issues with boundaries being crossed but when you read it one of the things that really struck me actually is that it talks about one person in particular who was the director producer and main actor and one of the things that i was like oh um it really hit home for me was was the lack of closure and and i think it sort of um expands into so many uh, productions that we see there is such a claim given to actors to reach these incredibly emotional heights um and incredibly uh, extreme places to go as an actor whether that's extreme violence extreme intimacy um extreme psychological uh like trauma and like we push these actors to get there and when they finish it, there's almost nothing to help them like reclaim that. And I think there needs to be so much more support for actors at the end of, of processes rather than like uh, just uh, leading up to it. Because if you think you have like, you know, at least a, a two month rehearsal period um, where you're doing like all this research, all this independent study and like all these acting exercises. Um, and then, you know, in terms of theater, the final night comes there might be a post-show party, but that's it. And you think, you know, you spent two months getting there and then, you know, you have maybe two hours as like a, a you know, like a cleanse afterwards. And it's just, it's, it's not, the, the standard isn't high enough for that, I don't think. And so it, part of the work that we do is we really encourage actors, like no matter what work you're doing, find your closure, find something um, that distinguishes between your personal and professional. Um, you know, it might be something as simple as you wear a watch when you're at work and you make sure that you take it off um, when you leave work. You have some sort of ritual, you have some sort of um, uh, like stamp of closure when you finish to ensure that you are done with that and that you are now moving on and engaging in your personal life. Because mm. it's so healthy for a start, mentally, mm-hmm. emotionally, all of it. Um, it's just that support that you were talking about do you um have you been finding that any drama schools are reaching out because it's something that always strikes me as when I was training you know and um I imagine Lizzie that probably for you as well there was lots of emotional recall and you kind of were put into that and then just left like for the rest of the day and there was no conversation about all that stuff and you're so young when you're at drama school and you're like possibly reliving a trauma that you didn't even realize that you were going to be reliving that morning when you got up and you walked in and I just wondered if there's if there's 
been drama schools reaching out? I think in general, training is certainly better for actors in closures than, than it has been. Um, I don't particularly remember getting a huge amount. Um, and from people that I've spoken to, I think the emphasis has certainly been on the um, acceleration and the inception and um, the, the creation of this character rather than the closure. Uh, in terms of drama schools reaching out, there have been a few. Um, there haven't been as many as obviously like we've hoped, particularly in the early days uh, when we were making ourselves very available. That was a little, that was a little disappointing, but um, we're certainly seeing it now. Um, and, it, and, you know, I'm, I'm ever hopeful uh, for, for, for more, more people to obviously get in touch with us. Um, I think one of the things that we, we talk about um, as, as intimacy directors is that it can be very difficult um, to be an intimacy director of students that you are grading purely because you've got a power dynamic there and it's very difficult like like we don't um, recommend uh, people to be directors and intimacy directors of the same show like that's very problematic um, and again something that we've we've really only seen recently because the role hasn't been around very long but you start to question that role of like, can you be an intimacy director and a, and a director? And it's like, well, well, no, because we really want to make sure that we're that third party as an intimacy director. We want to be able to, to make sure that as an actor, you can say no to us without ramifications and worrying about your grade and worrying about what, what happens to you, um, you know, in terms of your class standing, what happens to you in terms of like reputation, uh, all that sort of thing. Um, and so making sure that, you know, you have that third party there as an intimacy director to to look after your your students and your actors um when they're doing shows uh, is is paramount i think mm. i feel like um in that role as well you're really you really are the conduit aren't you if if they had something that i mean if it came up while you weren't on on set or in the rehearsal room with them do you feel like people would be able to come to you if there had been like a power dynamic that had made them uncomfortable and would you be able to then uh, move it forward is that something that you yeah so one of our key roles really is as, as an advocate and so you know like we want to advocate for our students we want to advocate um, for any of the crew that are working with with um, actors um, and so I really do believe that having someone who is not in a position of sort of like hire and fire, what we would say, um, is useful for getting at like the truth of how people are really feeling, particularly this early on in the process. This is still so new. Um, often actors aren't used to, to having um, like a third party available. They may have had like a great director. They may have had a great producer. They may have had like a great, um, uh, costume standby um, you know they may have had like a um, very like wonderful people surrounding them but no one in this particular role um, and I always think that it's wrong to assume that we are the first people that have ever cared about actor safety um, that's just not true there have been so many people who have put themselves on the line for, for actor safety before um, that were not paid to do so that was um, that they have stepped well outside of their uh, comfort zone to do so, well outside of their job description to do so, well outside of their pay grade to do so. Um, and so I think 
um, it's, yeah, it's certainly wrong to assume that we're the only people that have done that. But we are, this role is around the first sort of um, bird's eye view, I think is the best terminology. You know, we're looking at the intimacy from start to finish. Um, it's our sole goal in that respect, um, rather than like, you know, a, a quick check in here and there. But I do think it's really important to um, just give, give credit to the people that have done aspects of this role in the past. I think that's really important to do so. Absolutely. Um, and that's the thing, isn't it, within, there's always, there's always the advocates beforehand and then it's just, and if they don't, if people aren't doing that work, then we never get anywhere, do we, really? So um, I just, is there like a couple of like questions that you always get asked or do you have like a top three questions that people are always like, oh, you're an intimacy coordinator. Oh, you're an intimacy director. I want to ask you this question. Um, I think the idea of it is still very new to a lot of people. Um, so one of the main questions I get is like, oh, what do you do? Um, at the beginning, a lot of the questions I got were surrounding, um, like if I was in the porn industry, um, that was, that was a question I got a lot. Um, and again, I think it was a, a fair question because you hear intimacy coordinator and it's not immediately clear what that might be if you haven't heard of one. So there are a lot of things that like spring to people's minds. Um, what is another question I get? I'm kind of surprised because I, I didn't, it wouldn't have uh, occurred to me. But then I'm also thinking, but do they have intimacy coordinators in the porn industry as well? Because that would probably be really helpful for them too. Um, it's, people are certainly looking at it. Um, it's certainly a, an area that I think will grow within the, the porn industry. There are a lot more sort of regulations in the porn industry than we see in um, like the, the entertainment industry. Um, and so it's, it's a slightly different thing. I, I will say um, the big distinction for me is that like that is real and I create make-believe. Um, so the, for me, the, the jobs would be very, very different. Mm. Um, the, um, the regulations would be very different. Like the rules would be very different. Um, it, you're dealing with like the possibility of far more transferable health conditions um, versus what what we do and again obviously with covid like the risks are still um high unless like you know a huge amount of precautions are taken mm -hmm. um so i i can i can see where the like the confusion comes from um i also think that like some form of intimacy coordinator in in, in that world would be valid um it's certainly not something that i see uh myself um doing purely because uh for me it's uh we're creating stories and we're creating like make-believe and we're creating like um uh, sort of like the smoke and mirrors aspect of it rather than the reality mm. um, so, yeah. not getting um, home to the nitty-gritty but... <laughs> <laughs> not in the same way no. <laughs> just all about the romance <laughs> I actually when you said it first and I was like what did she just say oh nitty gritty got you <laughs> <laughs> oh well just the four um actually COVID is a, an interesting one so how is that impacting already on any productions that are coming up um I would say that the impact is um 
it's very stark between obviously like the theater world and the film and TV world. And a lot of that is surrounding um, like finances, uh, simply like intimacy in the world of theater is going to be incredibly difficult because there just simply aren't the funds. Like they don't have the funds to do testing every day. They don't have the funds to do like the extensive isolation that's needed. Um, they don't have like the funds for like potentially a lot of the PPE that you would need. Um, and so it's, it's unfortunately we've seen just such a real disparity between um, the theater and film industry and, and even more, um, yeah, I guess even more than we were before. Um, and unfortunately at the moment, like safe intimacy in terms of like recreating um, physically intimate moments is really only being able to be afforded by um, high-end TV and film, which is a, it's just a real shame. Um, I'm obviously thrilled that people are still able to do this work, but um, I am so sad for um, like people who uh, just can't afford to do this work anymore. I think there's a little bit of a silver lining in that anyone who was considering doing this work without a, an intimacy coordinator is now having to get creative. And the good thing about it is that they will have to consider other ways of portraying intimacy um, without necessarily heading straight to uh, a simulated sex scene without an intimacy coordinator. So it might just be like the door closes, closes they take off like, you know, a shirt or they take off like a, a coat or an outer layer. Um, you know, they may even like, you know, start to pull up a dress to like the mid thigh or whatever it is. And then like, obviously the door closes. Um, so like the, people are getting really inventive in that way. And I think that that's totally cool. Um, I really appreciate people as being as safe as possible. Um, but I do think that it's potentially saving um, a lot of actors and um, performers from uh, being put in position um, because they are so um, like desperate to get in front of a camera at the moment because they've just got no work. Um, but yeah. again, like there's a, another side to that where, you know, um, I worry that some actors and performers are, are being put in the position of risk um, because they are willing to do that. Um, but I, I, I hope that it will be a little bit more stark. So for example, they can say, hey, we're going to get an intimacy coordinator and someone says no. Well, then, you know, like now you have a decision to make as to whether you're going to go, go forward with that or not. Mm -hmm. um, I think the distinction between um, an intimacy coordinator and a COVID coordinator needs to be very clear. Um, you know, we are not doctors by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we have mental health first aid training. Um, we have a lot of like psychological first aid training, but we are not um, medics. And I think uh, it's very easy with productions to assume that that's our role as well. Mm. Um, that you know, we need to be able to manage the COVID within the intimacy scenes and just making sure that actually, no, like that needs to be someone with that uh, expertise as opposed to me. I look after the, the um, you know, I advocate for the actors. I create the choreography. I coordinate with many other departments. I do lots of other things, um, but I cannot give you uh, extensive COVID advice. <laughs> like that's, that's not my wheelhouse, nor should it be.
Absolutely not. It definitely is not your, and that's the thing, isn't it? Obviously, with everything going on, you can kind of tell that um, my husband's literally just walked in the door. <laughs> I'm podcasting right now. Sorry. <laughs> but like, how can you not tell? I've got my sound shield up. Like, how? how? Uh, you need to get in a duvet for it, like Misha. I know I need. I've made it very it. clear. I need a duvet for it, like Misha. And I can't even remember what I was saying. Um, oh, the lack of funding obviously is going to be have an impact as well. Um, and just as you were saying, that's only the high end that are going to be able to um, mm-hmm. kind of afford that, unfortunately. But um, hopefully, more people are talking about it. I mean, I think one of the big shows, obviously. Um, oh my God. What's it called? That was out this year and it was the book and everybody loved it and I didn't watch it. Oh, Normal People. Thank you. Because <laughs> they had a... <laughs> yeah. COVID brain. Um, there was a lot of chat about the intimacy scenes mm-hmm. and that and everything. Um, and I think that... So maybe for people who weren't aware, that's definitely become more of a talking mm-hmm. point, I think, because of that. Um, yeah. I think studios have been very, um, uh, they've been very receptive, which has been really helpful. Um, so obviously when you're like talking about like the major like subscription channels, like they've all been, I think, pretty solid about it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's just difficult when you're getting into like, like lower budget um, student films, that kind of thing. Um, and I guess my question at that point is, is that, I think I spoke about it last week um, is that, you know, if you were going to do a mass battle, you would make sure that you had a professional there to keep the people that you were involved safe. And it's the same thing with intimacy. If you're going to, if you, if you feel like the story is served by extreme scenes of intimacy, then you need to be able to have the professionals in place to keep your performers safe. And I think equating the two is actually really helpful sort of, um, again put our put our mental health on the same uh like um status as our physical health absolutely absolutely it, it should be a requirement when films get funding even if they're like just small pocket funding mm-hmm. it should be one of these things that they look at and they go look we notice that your script's got this kind of intimacy in it what what safeguards are you going to be putting in place and i think mm-hmm. it's just part that's part of the the campaign work with it now isn't it that you just need to advocate for and the more people talk about it the more of an expect- yes. expectation the more actors will say hang on you're wanting us to do this scene and I know for a fact that that's going to put me in a position that makes me feel uncomfortable or it's going to be more intense I mean and then it leads back to why it's important to talk about it in training when <laughs> so that all actors even if they're not coming out of training they've still got peers around them who've maybe been in training and can can yeah we're also trying to sort of speak to agents a little bit more too um to say that you know one way to advocate for your uh, performer is to ensure that they have like uh, a clause in their contract which says that if they're engaging in scenes of uh, simulated sexual nudity that there is an intimacy coordinator present um and that's been a really helpful thing because it you know it drives the awareness from like the agent side it drives the awareness from the actor side and it drives the awareness um, from the casting director side so um having something like that um in your contract is is really really helpful um to ensure that you know you're kept safe 
Yeah, it is really helpful. And as you say, getting all of getting everybody on board is what will help encourage all of it. Um, one of the questions that was brought up last week, and I actually, um, I don't know who, it was a guy that asked the question. And I was really, uh, when it came up in the little chat box on Zoom, I was like, well done that man for asking this question. So he asked really openly to the Q&A, what happens if a man gets an erection in a, a, mm-hmm. a, in a sex scene? And I just wanted to kind of, cover that with you because I was like at first of all I thought well done for being so open because that's he must have been sitting there going I really want to ask this question but I, but I don't know how and he did it so well done <laughs> whoever you <Yeah>. are <laughs> so um one of the things that so if a person with a penis does get an erection um one of the things for us is that actually if you have all the correct barriers in place and if you have all the correct choreography in place, um, it shouldn't really matter either way. Um, because one of the things is, is that it shouldn't be, there should be a barrier between them. So at no point should there be like genital to genital contact. Um, so you actually shouldn't know if there's, um, an erection or not, which I think is really, uh, helpful. Um, and healthy because then the person with the penis doesn't have to then either uh, apologize uh, either way if they have an erection or, or don't have an erection. Um, uh, and I think that um, what's very cool that we're starting to see now is like the increase of um, modesty garments and like the technology around there that keeps people safe. Um, we're getting like inventive all the time and always have been around like protecting um, like genital areas with um, barriers and modesty garments that will stand up to um, you know, extensive physical action. Um, and like I said uh, earlier, I, I hope that in five years time, you know, um, we're like, oh, I can't believe we used to use that. We now use this, uh, you know, just as like, you know, um, smartphones have updated, you know, like it's going to be the same thing. And I'm really excited to see um, the, like the technology that, um, starts to come about uh like in this area because before you know it used to be of and again people were dealing with it in the best way that they knew how um with like you know the old cocksuck which is just a very thin piece of material which was designed to sort of um obscure a penis but not um protect it uh either um against uh other people or, you know, um, like within the, within the like cocksock itself. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's going to be very cool to see, um, where, where like what the world of modesty garments go. Mm. Um, and there's like new companies sprouting up all the time, uh, around it, which is really exciting too. I was going to say it'll be a booming industry now. <laughs> Everyone will be like, guess what I'm going to start making. Let's look at <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think it's great and um we'll we'll definitely see more and more um and uh and yeah i think that'll be that'll be so good Mm -hmm. i think it was you know i can ask that question but actually it's that it's one of those things that people who maybe aren't in the industry who are listening to the podcast or people who are just coming into the industry or somebody who's maybe not done any film it's always going to be something that's maybe in the back of their mind of how do um those scenes uh, how are they navigated and I think it's just good for everybody to remember as you said earlier on this is the make-believe part it's not real mm-hmm. and that's you still really have the physical response yeah hormonal mm-hmm. or 
connection. Yeah. yeah. It, it, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, that's such an interesting, like, permission granted thing to just hear and be like, oh, of course. That's yeah. like, of course, you would have a physical response. Yeah. It's, and I think it's absolutely natural, you know, like, and it's, again, so many people tell you it's not something that they can, like, um, like voluntary control. Uh, it's a physiological reaction to a uh, physical stimulus that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore it's, it's, you know, it's nothing to shame them for. It's nothing to um, like point them out for, like they shouldn't have to like leave the room in shame or, you know, so the great thing is, is that if they can carry on and the person that they are working with is unaffected and that they are themselves unaffected because they don't have to worry about it, you will get a far better performance and everyone's going to be safe. Yeah. And also you said about or not getting an erection as well. And there's some sort of ego that happens with the other person that's in the scene of, oh, I didn't do. Yeah. Yeah. And that in itself can then have a knock on effect. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's really useful. So Misha, start uh, designing modesty garments. Let's make us some money. Great. They're going to be really nice colours. That's like, I'm all about the colours, patterns, (laughs) materials, love it, love it. (laughs) I was wondering um I've kind of we've been we've spoken about like on set and in rehearsal room is there much difference in the in the work that you're doing or is it very much the same because at the end of the day it's two people dealing with a scene um, yeah so the situation will change a little bit the rehearsal room is going to be more private um, in terms of there's going to be specific people that are in the rehearsal room. Whereas when you get to a closed set, you're likely to um, have a, f- a few more people um, in the room. And again, when we work with closed sets, we work with closed set protocols. So we ensure that there are only specific people in the room that need to be there when a scene of simulated sex is happening. Um, or, or indeed a scene, a scene of nudity. Um, so one of the things is just to make sure that the people that are in the room are supposed to be there and um, that you can kind of like take that off and, and ensure it. Um, and again, making sure that everyone who is in the room is also comfortable with the action that's happening because it can, it can very easily flip to like the only concern is for the actors. And actually, you know, like if, if there's someone who works in sound who has to hear a scene of um, you know, sexual violence over and over again, like that can be really exhausting too. And so just being mindful of what else is going on in the room um, and not just the focus on the actors is something that we have to be very cognizant of too. Both this is the, this is the sort of thing where you can oh. see someone else about to ask a question. You have to do that kind of. <gasps> I was going to um, add in, sorry, Elaine, I'm just, I've not even allowed you to potentially offer your point. No, um, it's fine. Continue on. I was going to ask about, so you've, that's the rehearsal room and on set, but then when the rehearsal room goes on to stage, how, so you're not there to watch the live performances. Are you still there to check in with the actors after shows? Like if anything went a mess or a rye or a boundary was crossed on stage? Yeah. So if we're talking in terms of um, intimacy coordination, which is for TV and film, um, the rehearsal versus the like uh, on set, um, I'm there for both. So um, the, the process is a little different. There's more people on set than there are in the private rehearsal, uh, but I, I'm there for both. And for the stage version, it's a little different. Um, 
we work there with the rehearsal, but obviously we, we are not there for every single performance. There is a little bit of responsibility um, depending on every production is different. Um, the structure is going to be a little bit different too. Um, a lot will probably fall onto like the stage manager in terms of just like checking in every every evening and making sure that like you know that there is a, a checklist of things that are covered um but we're certainly going to be available and on call for things like if a boundary was crossed or it might even be as um simple as like hey there was a physical injury and now the choreography doesn't work anymore because you know like we've had a shoulder strip sprain or like we've twisted an ankle or, or something like that um so again we, we would come in and then re-choreograph and, and um you know, uh, make it um, ready for, for the next performance. My question, <laughs> my question is actually, what do you do for you though, Lizzie? What do you do? Because, you know, you're giving everybody so much of your time and your uh, expertise. How do you look after yourself? Do you know what? That is the first time that I've ever been asked that. So that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, we, we talk a lot about um, obviously like looking after people, that's our job. And I think that people are drawn to this work, enjoy doing that. Um, but I think it's very easy and I fell victim to this in the early days of spreading myself incredibly thin. Because um, in the early days it was like, hey, I have this information, I want to share it with people. Oh, no one's interested. Okay, so I'll keep going and keep going and keep going. So that can be like, that was a, a, an aspect of it that was incredibly tiring. And then the sort of flip of that happened where it was then um, my inbox was then full, like all the time, um, you know, like uh, I was getting phone calls about this work, um, you know, like, and that, you know, people are like, oh, I really want to train in it. And it's like, that's very cool. But um, the difficulty for me is that I didn't have time to sort of go through their entire CV and then, uh, you know, assess it and um, explain what they needed to do next and stuff like that. So in the beginning, like that was, that was really, really like exhausting work because there was a lot of um, like demand on my time. And again, like all of it was unpaid at that point um, that the only point that we've ever started to be paid was when we were working professionally or um, running workshops. But, but the interesting thing about running workshops is that, you know, the time that you spend three hours is such a small fraction of the time that it has take to put that workshop on because there have been like years of research um, that have come before it. Um, and so there was a point like a, a while ago where um, there was just a, a, an exhaustion for me because there was just so much demand um, on the time. And because you are like a person who wants to help, um, you feel like you do need to respond to absolutely every single email that came in. And um, I learned very quickly that that was a terrible way to manage it. Um, and I wasn't practicing what I was preaching. So uh, I really needed to have a rethink about it. And um, I think being in therapy for everyone is a really healthy thing to do. Um, establishing boundaries is a really healthy thing to do. If I'm talking to people about personal and professional boundaries, um, then of course that needs to be something that goes for me as well. So for example, like I'm careful about what time I will answer emails between and how many emails like I will answer. Um, I found that putting a lot of information on the website um, was helpful in reducing like the influx of, of, of emails and information that was coming in. 
um, and being able to and being able to point people to it and say, hey, please read the website. Um, if you have any other specific questions, like like absolutely feel free to come to me. Um, but like, please read the website first because they're like a lot of the things that you're asking me are already answered on the website. Um, so you know, just encouraging people that hey, if you're interested in doing this work, like do your homework, like like you know. Um, it, yeah, it might feel quicker to directly email me to ask me about it, but like also that there's there's information on the website that is there, um, ready and free for you to use. There are so many resources available. Um, so just being obviously like um, in counselling um, consistently, I think is helpful. Um, being able to specifically manage your time really well and set up personal boundaries for yourself. Um, I try and. Uh, do like a lot of self-care for myself um, so uh, I try and avoid something that could turn into like a very like uh, I try and avoid anything that could become like uh, that I could rely on um, so that anything that could have like uh, any addictive tendencies um, I'm really into this game uh, I'm a bit of a Geek, I'm really into this game called Two Point Hospital, which is if any millennials are out there and remember the old version of Theme Hospital, I'm very into that. But um, I do get quite obsessed with it. So, for example, I will have to like walk my dog, and then I can go play video games because I know if I play video games, I will stay on there quite a while. And so I think it's really helpful for like a you know a, a decompression zone for me to do something which won't um, necessarily kick in any. Uh, like addictive things so for example like I'm I'll go for like a walk and then I'll have like a glass of wine or I will have like have a bath and then I'll play video games so I do something that allows me to like be in the moment of processing what's just happened um, before I go on to anything that like if I didn't process could numb instead and so like I try and sort of manage my my self-care like that and um, ensure that I go to something that will process rather than numb that's such an amazing awareness of um, self-care, having those two categories, the actual processing and the numbing. I, um, it's something that I've kind of noticed recently and, and it's an interesting thing, even talking about boundaries. I, I've been thinking a lot about people using social media and social media becoming such a like a like a job for people who become suddenly like TikTok famous and things. I don't know why mm -hmm. this has been such a big thought for me lately. As if I'm going to suddenly become a TikTok star and be like, I need to, it's a good thing I did this work. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've been thinking about that, the balancing of time and how we think that we're doing something that we really enjoy, but actually it is numbing, like going and watching TikTok videos or scrolling on Instagram and like enjoying the content and thinking, well, that was nice because I spent an hour on my phone, like, but actually it's time that is, it's numbing time. It's not time where you're actually processing things. And I think that's a really interesting observation um, for people to, to hear because it's just so important to recognize the difference and take mm -hmm. responsibility for your own self-care and I feel like we've just come full circle have a wank <laughs> <laughs> self-care <laughs> that's a double whammy it's not numbing but it's a little bit numbing <laughs> and I think that might be I'm so aware of time as well um um, I, I would love to keep chatting um, and I have so many other questions but um, 
we usually ask people what persistent and nasty means to them when they hear it, what that phrase it makes you feel, what it triggers. So, Lizzie, what does persistent and nasty mean to you? Um, I think for me, it just, I feel so energized by it. Which, um, and, I, and I think partly because I spend a lot of time, obviously, like in the States, in Connecticut, where those terms have specifically come from. Um, so I feel like um, it's sort of culturally quite embedded in that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it definitely triggers like a, a, a feeling of being energized. And um, like, it's almost like attack mode, but in like a, like a positive, healthy, like change the world attack mode. Um, like so a yeah, choreographed fight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a very safe, consensual choreographed fight. Yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Love it, um, Lizzie. Um, people can find out more about your website, which is um, lizzietalbot.com. dot mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and we'll link all that and a uh, Twitter and everything um, for people to. Go and read before you email Lizzie. (laughs) (laughs) And is there anything else that you're wanting to shout about or uh, mention before we sign off? I just wanted to say thank you you so much. It is uh, people like you that help spread the work Um, and like like the the real work. Because, you know, sometimes in uh, media interviews, it's not always as, um, you know, extensive as it could be. Uh, There's not always like, a ton of information it's almost like sound bites and so something like this where you can really dig into it it's just so helpful for people you know like really like looking at how does this work what does it do like asking someone who does it all the time like you know hey what is this work is is so valuable i really i really think because it also gives like a, a reality to the work too yeah and so i just i thank you so much for spending your time doing this work because you know the more you talk about i'm sure you talk about so many other subjects on here um, the performers need to hear and I think that that's a really helpful and healthy thing uh, for the population so thank you for dedicating your time too thanks thanks and building and building duvet forts I mean well, you know we do the important things I'm gonna have to build a duvet fort for our next one um Misha and I are going to attempt our sign off together it's, okay are you ready I'm ready. Thank you everyone so much for joining us for another episode of Persistent and Nasty Podcast. It's been Misha and Elaine with Lizzie Talbot. And until next time, stay Stay nasty. nasty.